you know, ExxonMobil is fine, but I, this isn't the time to buy ExxonMobil. There's other uh, stocks and other oil and energy stocks in the sector that uh, have much better upside opportunities and higher yields. Welcome back to Investing Experts. My name is Rena Sherbel. Today we are talking ExxonMobil and the bull and bear thesis. David Alton Clark runs the Winter Warrior Investor Investing Group on Seeking Alpha and is bearish on the stock. Callum Turkin writes articles on Seeking Alpha and is bullish on the stock. We're going to get into their thesis. If you're looking for a transcript for this episode or for any other of our podcast episodes, check out our author profile, Investing Experts on Seeking Alpha. And for any articles mentioned today, look for the link to them in our show notes. Okay, David and Callum, it's great to have you on Seeking Alpha. Great to have you on Investing Experts. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Good to be here. Callum, I'd love to start with you. If you could lay out for our audience your bullish thesis on Exxon. So ExxonMobil from 2020 to 2022, it's you kind of have like a normalized free cash flow of about 30 to $31 billion. 2020 would be an example of a bust. 2021 example of like a middle of the road situation 2022 example of a very good year for exxon so within those three years you could argue that you have a good normalized free cash flow and if you uh look at what exxon mobile has done with those free cash flows it's paid down a bunch of its debt it's bought a lot of its stock and it's maintained its dividend payout and marginally increased it so my bull thesis is basically the stock appears to be moderately undervalued using discounted free cash flow analysis it's a cash flow generating powerhouse with a lot of growth opportunities and its balance sheet has improved immensely in the past few years and from the end of 2017 to the end uh march 2023 it's paid down over 30 billion dollars in net debt so strong balance sheet free cash flow generating cow very shareholder friendly and that would be my the summary of my bull thesis all right david i'll follow up what's your thesis and why are you bearish on the stock well, um, I, you know, understand what Callum is saying about uh, how Exxon's gone from being at the bottom of the barrel in March of 2020. That's, uh, you know, the stock is up basically 200% over the last three years. So pretty much the, the top line uh, issue I have for the, for the thesis is the fact that Everything Callum has said is already priced into the stock. It's up 200%, but yet over the past year, it's down 5%. And it's bounced off of, I believe Callum's price target is like 122. And the price is, you know, I, I think it was 105 yesterday. I think it's dropped two or 3% today. It's in the 102 range. But it is, it's, it's tried, it's attempted several times this year to, to break above the 120 level and it just can't, it can't do it. And there's several reasons for that. You know, there's just so many different reasons. Uh, one is that, you know, like I said previously, all the good news is priced in. And uh, when you get to a certain point, like if you take Callum's uh, price target, of 122 and the price of 105, whatever it is just now, that's only about a 15% uh, bump from where we are right now. And on, on top of that, 
you know, so when you're, it's kind of like uh, you're, when, I don't know if you guys have ever played the game of Jenga, but, you know, Jenga's where they, you've got like 34 blocks or something, and you, you start off by pulling one out and putting it onto the top, and in the very beginning of the game, it's, it's super easy to be right and, and not be too worried about the whole pile toppling over because it's strong and it's just, you're just getting started. But when you get 200% to the highest point of the Jenga game, that's when it gets really risky and there's a, there's a big chance that the entire stack is going to come tumbling down. And so investing is counterintuitive where, you know, you want to invest when everyone else is uh, negative on the stock. That was back in March of 2020 when I bought the stock at 35 it was a 10% yield and everyone hated it. It was going to, Exxon was going to go under, you know, got, you know, we were in the middle of the pandemic. Nobody was driving. It was the worst, you know, time in the world to invest. You know, I think oil actually went negative per barrel. So they, they couldn't even, you know, they were paying people to take barrels of oil at the time that I bought the stock. And then now it's 200% higher and it's, it's bouncing up against the upper edge. And a lot of what Callum says in his last, you know, couple articles are, uh, you know, are, are pretty much right. You know, ExxonMobil has done a great job over the last few years, you know, repairing its balance sheet. And, uh, <clears throat> but as far as the price to free cash flow valuation, it's kind of tipped to the downside due to the fact that uh, the refinery profits have, have dropped off drastically. So um, when, in my latest article, what I was seeing was, is that, you know, ExxonMobil is fine, but I, this isn't the time to buy ExxonMobil. The there's other uh, stocks and other oil and energy stocks in the sector that uh, have much better upside opportunities and higher yields. Like, uh, I think there was three recent downgrades of ExxonMobil by JP Morgan, Mizuho, and Goldman, all kind of making the same point that I've been talking about in my articles. You know, JP Morgan is uh, concerned about the refining margins falling considerably. And uh, it's uh, and, and on top of the challenging, uh, tough economic backdrop, you know, that's another thing, you know, you got to consider uh, where we are as far as in the economic cycle, like there's this long awaited recession that hasn't come to fruition yet, but it seems like it more, more likely than not, we're going to have some type of a pullback in the, here in the next coming months. So you might get a much better opportunity to buy into ExxonMobil, uh, than you have right now. And, uh, Mizuho was the same thing with the refiners and then, Goldman actually downgraded them based on the fact that all of the good news is priced in with a 7% free cash flow yield on 2024 estimates of, uh, of oil. So uh, I've got a lot of other um, points as well, but I'll just pass it back over to Callum again. I think I've talked quite a bit so far. Well, I... Uh this is a little maybe a trivia thing, but you're talking about WTI going negative. 
one of the reasons why that happened is in America, you have to take physical delivery of oil. Like if you are trading oil futures, West Texas Intermediate is based on supplies to Cushing, Oklahoma. You have to take physical delivery of it. So one of the, it went negative because, uh, Basically, uh, you had to pay people to drive like semi trucks with pools in the back to just dump crude into those. Where Brent, it's all paper futures. That that was just some trivia thing when you brought that up. But I, the March of twenty twenty, things were uh, quite dire. And then, but what I like about Exxon Mobil is its commitment to investors because it's a volatile game. Commodity markets. I mean, fundamentally, Exxon Mobil's performance is based on factors outside of its control. So if you I mean, they're they're selling basically price takers, not price makers. So if you assume that a recession is going to happen, commodity companies are not going to be your number one investment opportunity. But I think that America, Europe and China will narrowly avoid a recession, largely because the official unemployment rates in Europe and America remain quite low. And America's official unemployment rate is less than 4%. People are complaining a lot about inflation and make we see prices of things going up, but they're still employed. They're still making money and credit card delinquencies have ticked up, but they're not. We don't see the kind of delinquency rates we've seen like during the great financial crisis. So I part of my bullish view on Exxon comes down to, I think, though, politically and how like households are coming under a lot of stress, but we will like narrowly avoid a recession in part because of things like the Inflation Reduction Act really is just additional fiscal stimulus and the infrastructure act is really additional fiscal stimulus so america's federal government is continuing to pump a lot of money into the economy the private sector is still quite strong even with interest rates on the rise and uh with exxon it the crack spreads refining margins they aren't what they were in the aftermath of the russian invasion of ukraine i mean in 2022 i rate refineries were make like crack spreads were north of 20 dollars a barrel it was they were doing quite well, uh, but what, I, what matters most for ExxonMobil is its upstream segment. It's all about the oil and gas production and the trajectory of oil and gas production. And ExxonMobil, it's a powerhouse in the Permian Basin. Its assets in Guyana, which is a small a country in the northern part of South America. I mean, they found over a bill, 11 billion barrels of recoverable oil in Guyana. ExxonMobil owns 45% of that venture, along with Hess uh, Corporation and Canuck, this Chinese company. And uh, ExxonMobil's, uh, its major growth drivers will be at the Permian Basin in Guyana. As its oil production in these regions continues to grow, so too will its cash flows at uh, keeping oil prices constant. So I think what I like about ExxonMobil is gaining exposure to a tried and true unconventional play and this emerging oil export like powerhouse in South America. Because unlike, if you look at the production sharing contracts in the OPEC nations, oil companies are you they're recovering their operating cost and getting like two dollars a barrel. Like if you operate in Iraq, that it's the Iraq National Oil Company that's keeping most of those profits. ExxonMobil, BP, Chinese state majors, state-run majors, they're just getting a little cut of that. But if you are a powerhouse in Canada, America, and Guyana, you get to keep a large chunk of those profits. So ExxonMobil has an attractive upstream asset base. And that is what I'm uh, most focused on. Like it's it's downstream based, the refineries, the petrochemical plants, because they have only a modest amount of exposure to Europe, relatively speaking. They have a lot of plants in America and Southeast Asia. Uh, they're better positioned than the European majors. But uh, for when you look at ExxonMobil's outlook, 
basically the its upstream outlook is now finally promising. Like they were having problems boosting their production during the 2010s decade, their output of oil and gas like marginally shrunk. But now because of the Permian Basin, because of Guyana, because of uh, their exposure to Tanzania's emerging LNG markets, their oil and gas production outlook is quite promising. So you look at uh, the debt, net debt reduction I was talking about during my intro, $30 billion, the net debt reduction like helps reduce their annual interest expenses. They're also shaving $9 billion in costs off their operating expenses, largely through layoffs, corporate consolidation. So by the end of this year, their operating costs should be $9 billion lower on an annual basis compared to 2019 levels. And they've already achieved most of those savings. So I, I like ExxonMobil because at a constant oil and gas uh, pricing outlook, they should be able to steadily increase their earnings and cash flows because stronger uh, reduced operating costs, reduced financing costs, and oil and gas production growth in attractive regions. But I will concede that the downstream outlook is uh, it's not as promising as it was because you'll never be able to replicate 2022 in terms of like cert, like crack spreads more than tripling overnight. And that's a black swan once in a life event. I'll pass it back to my colleague, David. <laughs> yeah, you know, I uh, I agree with a lot of what you said there. Uh, you know, like I said before, you know, why do you think ExxonMobil is up 200% over the last three years? Pretty much everything you just said is already priced into the stock. You know, and that's why it's kind of stalled out at this point. And uh, one of the other, you know, one thing I want to make sure and say is like, you know, from being a, a securities broker, uh, one of the things we always had to do was, uh, you know, figure out the suitability of investors. So I want to, I want to say that uh, I'm not making a, a blanket sell call on ExxonMobil for everybody out there. Everyone has their own objectives. You know, a lot of people bought into ExxonMobil when it was at its low in March and they got a 10% yield. They're retired already, you know, maybe uh, in uh, above 70 years old and they're not really trading or, 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 you know, making a lot of changes in their portfolios at this point in time. <clears throat> so, for someone like that, you know, that's, I, you know, I'm not telling that person, you know, you need to sell out. But for me at 60, you know, when I bought like about $100,000 worth of ExxonMobil at 35, and then it shoots all the way up to, to 110, um, the, uh, I'm still in that phase where I am uh, trying to build my income retirement portfolio. So taking profits, uh, uh, at the at the top where I'm up 200% and redeploying them into uh, other stocks that I feel have a better opportunity for upside and um, a higher yield, like a 10% yielder, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, several different ones that I bought for the service. Um, you know, that was that was a decision, you know, to make where you can uh, increase in your income and sock some away, you know, to a 200, you know, even if you're, if you're in a, a, a tax favorable account and you have a 200% gain, um, on a 10% stock, that's 20 years worth of income you've collected in a three years time. That was one of the points I made to, uh, the people in my service. And so it's kind of hard not to take advantage of that. And then I redeployed half of the proceeds into 
some uh, midstream MLPs which have higher dividend yields in the 10% range. And then I redeployed uh, the other half into uh, some of the E&P uh, oil stocks that, that don't have the disadvantage that ExxonMobil has. Like Callum said, ExxonMobil is a, is a mega cap major integrated oil and gas company. So it's kind of like a conglomerate like GE used to be where, you know, it's great. The E&P side looks promising, but then, okay, now the, re now the refining side you know the downstream side is 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 down, so it, it kind of tempers the ability for ExxonMobil to uh, become uh, profitable. And then, as far as on uh, valuation basis, that was what a lot of I think it was Mizuho that that uh, calculated that they were, you know, they were pretty much uh, you know topped out where they are, and uh, also on a a price to book valuation on twirling two months and on forward uh right now ExxonMobil is trading like almost fifty percent above uh where the whole rest of the sector is and so that's that's one of the other points I was making is that you know it's all priced in there the good news and that there is so many other uh oil and gas energy plays out there that have taken a much bigger hit have much, you know, returned a lot more uh, of the cash flow to shareholders, like 50 to 75% ExxonMobil right now. They've got a pretty much anemic uh, dividend yield of 3.5. So, you know, those people that bought back in March and they have secured a 10% yield, that's great. But if you're looking for, uh, you know, income right now, you know, ExxonMobil is not the is not the one for you. Even if, uh, you know, in Callum's last article, he was talking about it's a great dividend growth play, but uh, their dividend growth over the last five years has been less than 3%. So it's been pretty anemic. They haven't, that's been a big complaint of uh, a lot of the shareholders recently is that uh, ExxonMobil isn't increasing the dividend as much as the cash flow is increasing. And so what's happened is uh, on a, on a, uh, a dividend uh, basis, you know, anybody that's looking for income, you ExxonMobil, the five-year average uh, dividend yield is 5.25%. And for ExxonMobil to get back to its five-year average, it would have to drop to 70 from 105 or 102, wherever it is today to, to hit that 5.2%. So, um, you know, I think it's lost its luster a little bit for um, people who are are focused on income and that's that's primarily been the uh, cohort that invests in Exxon. Uh, not very many people have been involved in Exxon for the upside potential. But like I said about the Jenga game, you know, if you're, you know, we're, we're already at 105. If the, if it's going to top out at 122 uh, because of future oil prices, you know, outlook. And, and that was one thing that Callum, I think he just mentioned is uh, as long as there's a stable oil price outlook into the future. And, you know, a lot of the big uh, oil men here in Texas, you know, will tell you that, you know, no one can predict the price of oil. You know, everybody already thought oil, like even the, the great, uh, the guy from uh, Goldman Sachs was saying oil was going to be 140 this year. And, and he's had to peel back his estimates like two or three different times. Now I believe he's under a hundred. 
And, you know, even the Saudi oil minister said no one knows the future price of oil except for Allah. So, you know, I don't, I don't put a whole lot of faith in, in uh, you know, uh, the price of someone predicting, you know, what the price of oil is going to be in the future. Whatever, predicting oil prices, when you consider like how geopolitical events can change the oil price overnight, or how like a major regulatory change in the EU, your, uh, China, America could change the oil prices overnight. It's uh, I, what I'm most interested in ExxonMobil. It's a longer term play because you're talking about you should assess investors uh, what they want. Exxon for a short term opportunity, you there's all different kinds of ways to use like leveraged ETFs if you want to uh, predict where oil will go in the next month or two. But what I like about ExxonMobil is uh, the steady eddiness of this dividend aristocrat because. So we're talking about like it's uh, the per share quarterly dividend has not grown much since the oil pricing bust of late 2014. In late 2014, a crescendo happens where non-OPEC production because of America and Canada's like Canada's oil sands, America's uh, fracking boom. All of a sudden, you have like millions and millions of barrels being added uh, per day to the global supply. That OPEC decided to fight for market share. So from late 2014. To early 2021 you basically had a prolonged oil pricing bust oil prices kind of recovered in 2017 2018 but they weren't it wasn't like the heydays of the 2010 to 2012 period so what i like about <clears throat> exxon going forward is as its cash flows boomed with the oil prices recovering instead of increasing its uh, dividend aggressively it first focused on paring down its uh, debts so like I would talk about a thirty billion dollar debt debt reduction. That's kind of where a lot of its cash flows have gone. It's just repairing the balance sheet because of this prolonged oil pricing bust. So in over the past few years, David's right. The dividend has not grown much on a per share basis. However, when you look going forward, <coughs> ExxonMobil is now in a position. Excuse me. ExxonMobil is now in a position where it can start to aggressively reward shareholders. Like we've seen it's, uh, it's share buybacks. Like they spent, I think around 15 billion last year buying back their stock. Cause that's an easy lever to pull. Cause you can, if you increase your dividend, you're increasing your cash flow outlays perpetually into the future. Where if you buy back your stock, that's a, you can flex it up or down. So they started out by rewarding investors by buying back $15 billion of their stock last year. And they pushed through a three or 4%, uh, sequential increase in their dividend in the final quarter of 2022 going forward like this upcoming October or September, they'll probably announce a much larger dividend increase because they've already done the hard work of repairing their balance sheets. So I think the dividend growth story is about to start it at, it, they've maintained their payouts during a prolonged oil pricing bust. That's how you, but nobody's, nobody said that though, right? Callum, you're just guessing that, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. This is purely, I, I would, speculate they will push through a sizable uh, per share dividend increase the, during the final quarter of this year. And the speculation is built on they're going to achieve their cost reduction targets of reducing their annual operating costs by $9 billion versus 2019 levels. Their annual interest expenses have shifted. Uh, they're shifting lower from like 2020. They spent $1.2 billion on their interest expenses. They spent one uh, $0.8 billion uh, last year. So their interest expenses have gone down as they're 
uh, net debt load has been brought under control. And then I would, uh, because their oil and gas production base is finally growing again, they'll have a growing oil and gas production base. They have a repaired balance sheet and they'll be able to push through some sizable dividend increases, something that they haven't done in the past. Like I'll concede that ExxonMobil's dividend aristocrat status was maintained in part like by just very marginal payout increases from the 2015 to 2021. The, the outlook for ExxonMobil though is now it's it's pretty bright in a $70 WTI Brent environments, but you can't predict the price of oil. I mean, you could if you think a recession is going to happen, stay away from commodity names because I mean a recession just kills commodity prices in almost every scenario. But if you think a recession is going to be narrowly avoided, all this like commodity names should like I think there's a lot there's some ca modest capital appreciation opportunities and a meaningful amount of uh, income generation potential for companies that have repaired their balance sheets. And you look at ExxonMobil compared to some like so one of the reasons why I have, like the premium David was saying compared to some of the other names in energy is because it doesn't have exposure, real exposure to Russia. Exxon, like Shell and BP had in total energies, France's company had a lot of assets in Russia. Well, because they had to shut down their Russian operations and take a hit. Oh uh, yeah. ExxonMobil's hit was like three or 4 billion compared to like BP owning 20% of Rosneft. Right. But that's why they don't have exposure to Russia because they basically just gave up on Russia. Yeah, they, they, they originally gave up or they started giving up on Russia back in the early part of the 2010s decade. Like uh, in 2014, uh, uh, ExxonMobil began parting ways with Russia and like for an energy major of its size, a small three or $4 billion, it, a three or four billion dollar hit to a company of ExxonMobil size is pretty modest, you know. So we're not talking of tens yeah, of billions. billion here, billion there, no big deal. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like that's funny. Billion here, billion there, no big deal. Yeah, but uh, yeah, and so, but ex, but Russia and Iran are causing other issues for ExxonMobil and the price of oil right now because they're just they're running at the the highest levels they've ever run. Yeah, Iran's putting out more oil than they ever have, and and uh, Russia is is uh, you know the sanctions are not working. China, India, everyone's buying their oil, so they are they are affecting the supply side. And then on the demand side, is you know is being affected by the Fed, the interest rates, the China reopening hasn't come to fruition like everyone thought, but. I kind of, you know, we kind of got off track a little bit where we're talking more about the price of oil and stuff. And so, uh, you know, I know that's important, but basically ExxonMobil, um, you know, like Callum was saying, it's like they, they can make money at $70 oil, which it's at right now. So it's really not about the price of oil as far as my argument as to why uh, you probably shouldn't invest in ExxonMobil right now. It's more of a investor uh, philosophy, you know, investing is counterintuitive. You know, you, you buy, you know, just like what Buffett always says, you know, be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. Right now, everyone's super greedy on the greedy side. You know, the, 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 the synopsis that, that Callum is, is espousing is well known and it's been well known. I think Callum was writing about Guyana in like in 2017. So everyone's already heard about it, you know, so everyone's already in the stock and that's kind of why it's stalled out. Once you get to the top, there's no one else left to buy. It kind of peters out. There's no more buyers. Everyone's already bought. And so 
you know, there's, uh, you know, the godfather of value investing, you know, uh, Graham, uh, you know, he had, uh, he had uh, several different principles, but the, you know, his the second principle uh, was, I'm trying to think of it exactly, but uh, um, he said something to the effect of expect volatility and profit from it. So, you know, he viewed volatility as a given. And it's an opportunity to either buy stocks at a discount or sell them at a premium. And I'm saying ExxonMobil is definitely at a premium right now. It's trading at 32% above its long-term average rate of $80 a barrel. And, uh, you know, right now, uh, I, if I had a big gain in it, which I, which I did, I already sold mine, but you know, I've, that's what I, that's pretty much what I've been saying is I would take profits and redeploy them into other oil and gas assets that have better opportunity for upside and higher yields. Um, so that's really my point. I, what I like about Exxon is the steady eddiness of it. So it is a lot of the uh, uh, positives are well known, but those positives, I mean, they're very needle moving. So you look at its huge exposure to the Permian Basin. Recently, Darren Woods, the chairman and CEO of Exxon, he's talked about how they're pursuing new fracking technologies to try to boost the oil recovery rates there. The recovery rates of unconventional place, it's about 10%. Like in the North Sea and the Gulf of Mexico, you can recover north of 50% of the oil in place. Fracking, you're, we're just scratching the surface there. So like one thing that's working for ExxonMobil's favor is you can you can see where the upside opportunities lie. So like before, get there's always the oil and gas prices and where that goes will influence the short-term move. It's in ExxonMobil. But if you look at it, there's a lot of technology improvements that could happen in fracking plays. This is not low-hanging fruit that we've seen over the past decade. This would be some like, you got to get all your PhDs down there in Texas and in New Mexico to work this, like, this out. Because we're talking about how do you keep the fissures open when you frack a well open longer? Because you use sand as a province to keep those fissures open to get the oil flowing. And they're, they're I don't know exactly what they're testing out because he didn't get too specific into it. But if ExxonMobil could increase recovery rates in the Permian Basin from 10% to 12%, 20% or something that like starts to mirror like half of what you would for a uh, conventional play, I mean, that would be an immense amount of upside that's not priced in. I think like in Guyana, everyone knows Guyana is like a huge uh, growth driver for Exxon, but it continues to deliver. It's Steady Eddie's success where every year you'll hear ExxonMobil and its partners announce a couple new big discoveries, another billion barrels or two billion barrels of recoverable oil has been found. I like ExxonMobil, you can see the upside and you they continue delivering where if you're talking smaller oil and gas companies, they there might be a lot of hidden potential there. There's also a lot of hidden risks like maybe their assets aren't as productive or you know whatever the situation is right i x up the higher the risk the higher the risk. yeah well and you know just about the fracking thing as far as what you're saying you know that's actually how i got started i got my very first article was uh published uh, as a guest post in the wall street journal in 2011 when uh the uh fracking uh boom the first fracking boom started when they when they actually figured out how to do fracking. Uh, and so um, this, what you're talking about now, uh, Darren Woods says that in the Permian, he thinks that they're gonna be able to double uh, the fracking, uh, you know, the ability of the oil they're able to extract from fracking now with this new uh, technology that, they, that, they're, that they're working on right now. 
But again, you know, that's, that's kind of old news at, at this point. We're talking about it right now. It's not like something that people don't know about. So, you know, why hasn't the stock already popped? You know, because it's already popped. So, you know, and then on Guyana, um, yeah, that's a great, great find out there. But I don't know if you've been following it too much, but, uh, you know, the, <laughs> the Guyanese government is kind of uh, upset that the deal that they got, you know, ExxonMobil kind of made a, a, a great deal with them at the time before. And then all of a sudden now they're finding all these new discoveries and stuff. And, you know, the Guyanese government, it kind of, uh, feels like they got, uh, slighted and they're, they're doing all they can to try to claw back some of the profits. Uh, so on Guyana, I've, I know the legal situation you're talking about where if there's an oil spill, for example, they wanted uh, ExxonMobil and the, its partners to pay an unlimited sum. So there was no cap and ExxonMobil was like, well, we can't be exposed to that legal liability. This is like one of the many le ongoing legal situations. But recently there's a favorable resolution for Exxon where that I'm just going to use Exxon instead of the consortium because Exxon's leading the show. So Exxon and this partners where uh, they were willing to put up $2 billion as part of the appeals court process because the appeals court ruled that, no, you can't be exposed to an unlimited liability. And then ExxonMobil and his partners put up $2 billion to help uh, to continue the legal process. So I being exposed to $2 billion over it goes up to $5 billion is not uh, that uh, the, the legal the courts in Ghana are sided with ExxonMobil, but the government is not. However, it's not a situation where the government could just nationalize ExxonMobil's assets. It is it is a contentious situation. I mean, if you uh, the more uh, it was you were just saying the more upside you have, the more risk. If Ghana were to nationalize its oil industry, I mean that'd be devastating for ExxonMobil. However, the legal system in Ghana has been relatively favorable for Exxon, so I think uh, yeah I, the. I wasn't just talking about that one specific thing you were saying. There's, you know, like you said, the 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 leader of Guyana or whatever. He tr he's already tried and they're, you know, to to take back, you know, some uh, get a better deal out of ExxonMobil, not not just about the spills. But uh yeah, so they're, you know, I'm not saying it's a, you know, they're going to nationalize the oil there, but I'm just saying that, you know, it's not like everything's all hunky dory with uh, Guyana right now. The other, the other point that uh, could be, uh, you know, like, of course, there's this whole litany of risks that ExxonMobil, you know, lists off in their 10K. But uh, one, of, one of the uh, ones I wanted to touch on that, that actually some of the largest shareholders of ExxonMobil have actually um, uh, hired some lawyers and started a resolution on was their... Uh, their net zero estimates, you know, of, uh, you know, you, you keep talking about how much they're going to increase production and, and things are going to get bigger and bigger in the future. But then on the other side of the coin, the International Energy Agency has a net zero emissions, uh, uh, you know, scenario that uh, they're trying to push, you know, into the future. Like everybody, you know, I think the UN minister just came out and said some really harsh things about oil and gas producers. But uh, what these large shareholders are are uh, are focusing in on are is the fact that ExxonMobil um, isn't really disclosing the quantitative impact of uh, the uh, retirement of their asset obligations in regards to the net zero scenario. Have you thought about that, Callum? I 
the way I'd factor in like climate change to an a, a fossil fuel producer is that if if you do like a like when I was working at Valuentum Securities, I would model out its free cash flows perpetually into the future, and you could get like a fair value estimate of anywhere from like one hundred and fifty to two hundred dollars per share of Exxon. However, the reason why it's trading a lot below that is because the perpetuity side of that equation, you need to truncate it because eventually ExxonMobil's assets will be like regulated and taxed out of existence. You know, the government, it's not that you couldn't keep producing oil and gas, but it's uh, that the governments will just prohibit you from doing so. So I think like that's already kind of factored into ExxonMobil stock. Like if, if you assumed there was no global warming. I mean, ExxonMobil would be deeply undervalued. You, well, basically, you assume if they could produce oil and gas in hundreds of years from now, they would be deeply undervalued. But the reason why it's trading just north of 100 instead of at 150, 200 is because people are already factoring in that eventually its cash flows will stop. So as, as it concerns ExxonMobil's commitment to next zero, I think ExxonMobil and Chevron, they don't like, I, I don't know the management teams personally, but I don't think they really care just because the it's like what is driving global warming is people consuming fossil fuels. I don't really blame the oil companies for that. Like the UN, I saw that like they were like oil and gas companies are killing this planet. But it, it's the consumers that are using its products. It's like the same thing with coal demand hit an all time high last year over like 8 billion metric tons burned. It's, it's like human beings seem to place a lot of the burden on those producing oil and gas and coal and fossil fuels but as long as people continue to drive vehicles use plastics and lubricants and detergents that are made from petrochemicals i mean exxon will have a huge customer base to meet i don't think ExxonMobil can achieve net zero because it produces in scope three emissions because it's a major oil and gas producer. Like how does a major oil and gas producer, you know, not produce, produce scope three emissions? It's impossible. So I think that the way that's factored in is you just truncate uh, its cash flows and a discounted cash flow model. And I think that's already impacted into the stock as, as it concerns. Right. But it's not factored into the discounted cash flow model. That's what the major investors are saying that they, they have not uh, included that in their estimates. And so that's what they wanted more clarity on, you know, exactly how that is going to affect the cash flows. And so if, you know, they're saying ExxonMobil glossed over that, and if they don't, you know, they're not including that, so their numbers might be higher than they should be. But it that's the point. you might I, the asset retirement obligations for all energy companies are probably way lower than what they would need to be assuming that like, but it's it's impossible to quantify and qualify when these assets will get shut off because if Europe's like oh we're gonna really crack down on companies in 2035 and Amer some American politicians like we'll join Europe it's like that's there's nothing you need to have like certainty in order to boost your asset retirement obligations. I do think that is a huge gray area and it's something that's always going to loom over fossil fuel producers. I just think that there is no way for you on an accounting basis and a quantifiable basis to figure out when you're going to shut off your oil wells because, I mean, America, we're still consuming over 100 billion, million barrels of like liquid fuels every day, right? Oil consumption's at all-time highs and China's reopening will just keep driving it higher. I think that that is definitely the biggest downside risk you can see that risk, but it's impossible to quantify how climate change would impact ExxonMobil beyond just knowing that eventually its oil and gas will shut down.
Uh-huh. Right. And you know what? I agree with you on that. You know, I'm just bringing that point up is that that might be something that they're going to have to do, you know, because there is a formal resolution from some of the major shareholders where they want ExxonMobil to detail that out further and include that in their estimates. But I agree with you that I don't think oil and gas is going anywhere. And, uh, you know, and ExxonMobil, if, uh, you know, one of my uh, CNBC compatriots, David Faber, I don't know if you watched that special he did on ExxonMobil. Uh, did you get a chance to catch that of all that? Uh, no, I was at a Got trip it. in Europe for a yeah. while, so I haven't seen that. Okay, okay. Well, you should watch that, you know, because... Um, it's not just about oil and gas and driving cars and stuff. I mean, they're, they, they make everything. They make the plastic bags and containers and, you know, ExxonMobil has in this entire plan of, uh, you know, what they're going to, how they're going to make money, uh, even if oil and gas is no longer used for vehicles and things like that. So, you know, I don't think ExxonMobil is going anywhere. And, uh, you know, I'm, I was bullish on ExxonMobil pretty much all the way up until, you know, it skyrocketed, you know, 30, 40% above its average. And that's when I took profits earlier, uh, in, in 2022. Uh, but up until then, you know, I was, uh, you know, an ExxonMobil shareholder. I just feel like it's topped out right now and, uh, I'm waiting on a, you know, I would, I would definitely be waiting to get back into it, uh, you know, before, uh, you know, I wouldn't buy it up at these at these levels. Is my my point? Uh, I remember. I, I'm not going to say his name right, but Al Namimi. He's the former head of OPEC and Saudi's national oil company, Saudi Arabia's national oil company. I remember back in 2014, he said uh, petrochemical plants will eventually represent over half of all oil demand. So that is kind of like the future of oil is basically you know it's plastics, lubricants, detergents. Like there's an insane amount of products that are made from crude oil and natural gas. Like people, oh, yeah, everything. Yeah. like you look at a Tesla, there's a lot of oil and natural gas in there. Right. And there's, right. there's no, it's in everything across the board. And like you look at clothes, synthetic fibers, synthetic rubber. And so I think the, one of the things about ExxonMobil that why I like it as a long-term play is because it, it's oil. It's how climate change will impact this upstream production will be negative, but it does have a way out of it in the sense that a huge global integrated petrochemical base and it, it, it has a pretty good understanding of biofuel. So if you can't use oil to feed petrochemical plants, it can use its biofuel industry and you use like out like fourth generation, fifth generation algae uh, to because it's out of the high fat content to eventually produce uh, these plastic products and detergents that we need. So I, it is. I, I think it's climate change and how that will impact the fossil fuel industry. It's uh, it's talked about a lot, but I think you could make a case that ExxonMobil should better showcase its strategy for like 2050. Because over the next 10 years, we're going to continue consuming a lot of oil and gas. But eventually, you know, I think ExxonMobil is going to. You know, they're they're not going anywhere. They're 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 definitely going to. Um, you know, uh, keep making money regardless. They got a great management team. But, uh, you know, as far as the investment side of the coin is, you know, it's counterintuitive. You know, you, you invest, you want to get in there when everyone hates the stock and sell when everyone loves it. And right now, pretty much everyone's in love with uh, ExxonMobil like Callum is. And so, you know, I'm, I'm more of a contrarian investor. And so that's why I took profits and I think it's at a top. And, uh, 
you know, I'm going to, I would wait for it to come in, uh, substantially before I would consider putting my money back to work in Exxon Mobil. It's a, it's a boom bust. It's a boom bust thing. You know, we're, we're, we're definitely at the top of the cycle for Exxon Mobil. You know, it, it was like, what, $35 in, in 2020. And, uh, you know, it could be $35 again, regardless of all the pomp and circumstance, you know, what the future might hold for them. I, if, if you're talking like what would be the best capital appreciation or income generation opportunity over like a short term view, an Exxon Mobil that's already rallied and because oil prices are, I, they've come off considerably from their highs in 2022, it probably wouldn't be the greatest investment. My thesis is all, it's based on like a multi-year holding period. Like if you wanted to buy Exxon Mobil and hold it over the coming years, I think there's a lot of income generation growth and some capital appreciation upside there. Because over the short term, it really comes down to, are you bullish on oil prices? Will we avoid a recession or are you bearish on oil prices? Because the recession is going to grip America, Europe, and China at the same time and the, send the global economy into a downturn for a while. I, for me, what I like about ExxonMobil is because it's a long-term buy-and-hold play, sleep-easy-at-night kind of play. In the short term, though, I I would agree with David that it is not like the greatest opportunity there because a lot of the the gains have already been had. I My thesis is entirely long-term just because ExxonMobil, it it can be prepared for any eventuality. I mean, I if like as it concerns climate change, I, I, I believe in it, but I'm also not panicking about it. Like, I think the human race is very resilient. We'll always find a way to... There's the apocalypse pending. It's like the nuclear apocalypse. Mass starvation is going to happen. I, the human race will continue going on. We'll survive. We're not going to kill the earth. Yeah, I, I never... I, when people say climate change, I see a tsunami of cash. Like, how do you cash in on that tsunami? I think Exxon... You know, I want to say one thing, though, Callum, before I forget. You know, I, I agree with you. I'm not a short-term trader or a short-term investor, I'm investing for the long-term as well. And one of the things that I've learned over my 30 years in the market is when, when you initiate a position and, 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 and establish your basis, that's one of the biggest factors in uh, how much uh, profits and uh, how well you're going to do on that investment. And so that's why I'm saying right now, like if you look back at my articles, uh, this has already happened once already. ExxonMobil popped up to 120, uh, I think a few months back, and then it dropped back down to 85. And that's when I bought back in at 85 at, for the service. And then it went back to 120 again, and I and in like four months' time. And that was such a quick uh, a rise that I, uh, I snapped it off again at 120 just because I'm doing this for income. There's, uh, there's two ways to create income for retirement. One is by buying high dividend, you know, or dividend producing uh, stocks. The other one is by taking capital gains in uh, stocks and either redeploying them into higher dividend producing stocks or just booking those gains and using the tax loss uh, 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 strategy to, to negate the capital gains if you're in a tax advantaged account but that's you know cash flow from your from your uh from your investing accounts is is cash flow whether it comes from dividends or it comes from capital gains so that's kind of why i have a little bit you know there's a lot of in income investors where they only consider just the dividend side of it so that is why i took the profits on um 
on ExxonMobil and I'm waiting, you know, I still believe in the long-term story, but I think it's overpriced right now. So if, if somebody buys ExxonMobil at, at 105 where it is right now, and it, it drops back to uh, 85 or something like that, and they're, they're sitting on a 20% uh, loss, you know, that's not gonna make me sleep very well at night. So it's not a sleep well at night uh, stock for me right now because I feel like it's at an elevated level and like the floor could fall out from underneath it at any point in time. So um, I'm, that's why I'm waiting in, 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 in hopes that it pulls back to a position where I feel like it's got support underneath it, that it will be profitable for the long term. It a lot of like Exxon Mobil comes down to where you think uh, like will we see a recession in the U.S. during the second half of this year? Because that's like one of the reasons why it, it, it popped up to one twenty when oil prices boomed in the wake of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But then oil prices started to pull back a lot because of these recessionary fears. So I think that's that's why like you're we probably saw Saudi Arabia recently was like we'll announce another one million barrel per day voluntary reduction. But they're kind of preparing for the chance of. Is there going to be a recession in the second half of this year? I like Exxon, so I think we'll avoid that recession because of just the resilience of the U.S. economy, low official unemployment rate. People are complaining about inflation, but they're still getting paid. They can still make it on their mortgages, their rents, and what, so forth. But there is, like, in, in terms of an entry point, this is not, like, the most attractive time historically to enter in ExxonMobil, but I think the company still has room for some upside just because of uh, integra fully integrated operations. Its upstream base is finally starting to get things going favorably because its oil and gas production was declining in the 2010s decade. Now it's increasing. But my, I think if it, if it went to 105 and then drops down to 85, what, what would make me sleep easy at night is knowing that five years from now, 10 years from now, I'm, I think there'd be a meaningful capital appreciation. If you, uh, if you were just, if that like decline that would like shock you, they, it wouldn't be the best opportunity for you. But I, I think if you have a longer term horizon, getting into ExxonMobil now makes perfect sense because it, on a fundamental basis, if things are finally starting to go in the right direction across the board, like major cost reductions at a time when it's uh, upstream oil and gas production is growing. I mean, that is a perfect crescendo for cash flow and earnings growth. Energy prices will remain volatile, but the, the environment after the prolonged oil pricing bust of the 2010s decade is going to be very favorable for upstream companies with growing production. But as in the short term, there'll, there'll be an immense amount of volatility. So it's like if you wanted to wait a bit on ExxonMobil, I'd understand, but I still think there's more upside than downside in the current environment because we'll avoid a recession. Right. And I'm, that's, where, that's where we're on the different sides of the coin because I feel like there's more downside and upside in the, in the near term. And that's why I would be waiting. And also one other thing I just want to add is as far as creating a new position, you know, one of my uh, sayings that I've kind of come up with over the years is patience equals profits. And so just having patience and, and waiting for a stock to come in, you know, is, uh, is probably one of the, one of the best ways to create profits for yourself. Um, and then layering into the position, even when the time comes, uh, if you, as my service member knows, I always layer into positions. So I would, uh, even if ExxonMobil did drop back to 80 or so, 
uh, I would only buy a, a start off with, you know, I might split it up into four different, you know, uh, tranches of buys and I would buy a quarter, a quarter, a quarter, a quarter over time just to make sure that, uh, you know, I, uh, you know, and I always keep like one quarter in, in dry powder in reserve in case it, in case it drops even further or, or higher or lower. So, yeah. That's one thing is, uh, you know, when I was younger, uh, that was some of the mistakes I made. I would be so sure of uh, the future and like all the great prospects that, uh, you know, ExxonMobil had that I would say, you know what, I'm not, it's, it looks so great with the Permian and they're going to double fracking and uh, China's coming back online and, and OPEC cut a million barrels and Guyana's going to blow up. So I'm going to put my whole 10 grand, if that's what I had to allocate towards a position, I would say, I got to buy it all right now, 105, because it's going to 122 and I'm going to miss out. And then the next thing you know, you know, the next day it'd be down to 100 and the next day it'd be down to 95. So my big advice to give to uh, newer investors or, or anyone that's listening is to, to layer in over time and uh, have patience when you're... Um, creating new positions in stocks. I went for a dividend aristocrat or any income generation idea, the ability to take that and just, that you have drips where you can just reinvest those dividends into the company is a great way to build wealth over time. If, you, if you're very bullish on the long-term opportunities, like a company like Microsoft, because it's outside the climate change realm and selling technology or like a pharmaceutical company, consumer staples, you can do this as well. But if you really want to, if you are very bullish on a company, I think reinvesting dividends or distribution as a master limited partnership is a great way to build wealth. Because it's just, I you, we, compounding wealth is like, that's how a lot of people get rich. It's not the the initial position that made, that might make them a lot of money, but it was also the decision to continue reinvesting that as compared to taking your some of your profits and buying Starbucks, so luxury watches. I, I definitely agree with that. <laughs> Or however much money you're investing, what your you know, spending profile is and whatnot. No, I agree. You're right on that, Calum. You know, does I drip everything. I'm dripping everything right now, you know, until I need it, if I ever do need it, you know. And so that's that's definitely true. Compounding is the way to get rich, for sure, over time. Yeah, you look at like Warren Buffett, obviously, a well-known investor. I, he always almost always layers in his position, like Occidental Petroleum or the various Japanese trading houses, he's been steadily increasing, increasing, increasing his position. Yeah, I'm a, I'm actually from Omaha, Nebraska. My father was in a, a, an Air Force intelligence officer in Strategic Air Command at Office Air Force Base. And I was born in Clarkson Hospital in Omaha, Nebraska. And that's where my father transitioned from being an, an intelligence officer. He retired and became a stockbroker managing his own portfolio. And so, um, you know, I was kind of born and raised under the same kind of Midwestern conservative uh, investing values as Warren Buffett. You know, some people in investing circles, you know, call me the Oracle 2.0, but not because I'm as good as the Oracle. It's because I'm twice as big. That's what, you know, that's why they nicknamed me that. <laughs> <laughs> I I love the oil and gas industry, but I've only lived in regions where there's no production whatsoever, like Oregon, Washington, and uh, Pennsylvania. So I've I've know it from like a theoretical basis, but I've never really like 
I've never been to West Texas, so that's something I need to do yeah. at some point is go on a big old road trip yeah. and see these yeah, yeah. in person. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's like this is, you know, ExxonMobil's known as the Texas oil titan. And so, you know, everybody, you know, here is you, you're, are you in California or are you in uh, Oregon? Well, up in Seattle, Washington. I was expecting you to like Chevron, you know, because that's the West Coast, you know, uh, major. Chevron's also a good company that I'll probably write uh, some articles about it for Seeking Alpha relatively soon. But I was just focused on ExxonMobil because I was at the Guiana Permian Basin and the Tanzania. It's got a lot of opportunity. Like finally, ExxonMobil will be able to grow its production. <laughs> like for like in the past 10 years, it's been slowly sliding lower. And then they finally have got everything together to get it growing. Right. I sold my Chevron too, you know, on the, on the day that they announced the big uh, buyback. And I think it spiked up to like 187. And I was like, okay, I'm taking profits on that. And that's the top. And I think that was the top. I think it dropped back down to like 127 or something like that. I haven't really paid much attention since I sold out on that. But I understand what you're saying too about living in those areas. I actually uh, was a consultant for Nike in Beaverton, Oregon for several years. I lived on the West Coast and and consulted on the West Coast when I was an IT uh, program manager. And so, yeah, there's a whole different mindset. And you can kind of t- <laughs> you can kind of tell by how many uh, of the of the charging stations there are, you know, based on the map. You know, here in Texas, you know, you're going to be big time out of luck looking for a charging station on I-10 going from El Paso to Houston. You know, it's they're few and far between. And I, people will bring up like Norway's EV sales, but like Norway's a country with eight or nine million people. <laughs> That's not going to decimate oil demand if Norway starts selling a lot more EVs. You know, like America, the majority of cars sold are power, they're hybrids, but they're still powered by oil and gas. So it's like, or, or you know, they're powered by gasoline and some diesel. But it's uh, when you look at like the EV fleet, like we're just seeing it begin to take up a modest chunk of total uh, unit sales for cars. Same concept in China, which is another huge uh, demand growth. So I, it's like I, the EV story is like beginning to play out, but people are thinking that oil demand will get decimated. I mean, you can't be like 5% of new car sales and decimate demand. There's still the existing fleet. There's still people now commuting back to the office. I mean, airliners have no idea how to replace uh, kerosene jet fuel with uh, a different sort of technology. Because where do you get, where's the energy density? I mean, if you can't have a huge battery of these planes, they wouldn't get off the ground. So I think- No, no, you're, you're right about that. You know, EVs are for short-term, short-duration trips. Even Ford, at their last markets day, was talking about that as far as, you know, they're not, they're, they're not anticipating having these long-distance EV vehicles um, because, or like in the trucking industry or delivery industry where there's a payload on the vehicle, it just doesn't work out. So they're doing the hybrids and everything for over a 300 mile radius. But I do think they will, um, you know, they are still just at their infancy. Um, uh, Tesla's definitely got the lead on that. But, uh, you know, I don't see them taking over um, the entirety of the, of the cars and trucks on the road for a long, long time. As it concerns ExxonMobil and its ability to navigate things, I, it eventually will become a major utility company because it's like operating power plants and the offshore wind turbines. It's kind of in the same sort of operational expertise 
of ExxonMobil. Like if you're drilling a deep water well, you know a lot about how to manage uh, like major industrial assets that are out in the Gulf of Mexico dealing dealing with like hurricanes, water swells at the like high levels of sodium in the water, which corrodes equipment. So I think the long-term future of Exxon is they'll have a lot of petrochemical plants fed by uh, like biofuel, like basically algae, converting that into using the fat of algae to make uh, plastics, lubricants, detergents, synthetic fibers. And you'll also have ExxonMobil be a major electricity generator because these EVs, I mean, the power grid is not set up to handle like in America that's powered by EVs and ExxonMobil will be a point. country that makes that happen. Because power we need grid is it. nowhere near ready to go. And, you know, I agree with you on that too, Callum. I've been thinking that all along is that... Uh, you know, ExxonMobil, it's an energy company, you know, so what, you know, if energy transitions into, you know, uh, EV, electrical energy versus, uh, you know, oil and gas or whatever, then that they're going to be into that. That's what they're going to be. And on top of all those other things we talked about as far as packaging and, you know, oil and gas, like, like we both agree, it's in every product and service pretty much across the board and so i don't think it's going anywhere for sure that's why it's so important to have a strong balance sheet because if you have like regulatory requirements requirements that are increasing and like all these politicians and regulators are coming for your business and you have a bloated balance sheet it's got like that's what kills the company which is why i think it's so important that ExxonMobil took advantage of its strong free cash flows and paid down, like, or basically built up a lot of cash on the balance sheet and paid down its debt. Like the companies that won't survive the energy transition and the regulatory side of things and the tax side of things in particular are those that don't take advantage of the good years and have a strong balance sheet. If you have a weak balance sheet, uh, regulators and the, like the creditors and the banks will just kill you. They'll kill your business. So that's, that's why I like ExxonMobil's management team. They're a very strong long-term management team currently at the, and they could self-finance. Yeah. They don't have to take out uh, loans or whatever to drill new wells and things like that. You see, so I think we're pretty much on the same page, except for I just feel like it's over overvalued right now, and I would I would I'm advising I'd wait for a pullback, you know, before uh, initiating a position. But I still like ExxonMobil. It it was you concerned the self-financing aspect, you know, like all of these LNG export projects. From like sometimes it's like a, I think Tellurian was like the former head of Chinari LNG. He then founded his own company and then was going to like trying to raise financing. But it's very difficult when you don't have any assets, but you have big ambitions and a plan to try to raise uh, the financing, the capital to like meet those ambitions. ExxonMobil can have big plans and do it itself. It doesn't. It doesn't need to go around basically begging investors. Uh, for cash, so Exxon Mobil is like the future is in its hands. I like what we've been saying. It's like if you are bearish on the U.S., like on the global economy because of rising interest rates, inflation. I mean, governments can no longer just do crazy deficit spending because all of a sudden it starts to hurt you a lot if you're, you know, financing government deficit spending with higher interest rates and you're bearish. It's it's kind of like the long term story is great. The short term story just comes down to are, are you bullish or bearish on our ability to navigate all of these headwinds facing the global economy and i'm on the bullish side of things you're on the bearish side of things by the the one thing we can't agree on but it also has to do with the stock performance you know not just the macro situation the stock's up 200 percent. you know so it's about the stock for me is a big part of it not just the headwinds coming on i also think the stock has gone it's been on a parabolic run if you look at the chart and it's rolled over 
in the last year. And so it's in the middle of a rollover. So as far as talking about the technical aspects of the stock is, is an issue for me as well, not just the, the macro view and, and those types of things. I think that's going to be, you know, one of the reasons why uh, it does continue on a downward stroke. You know, when in, based on the technicals right now, you know, a lot of people have different ideas about the importance of the techni techni technical aspects of a stock. But for me, it's uh, basically just telling you who's in charge. Are the bulls in charge or the bears in charge? And so for the last three years, the bulls have been in charge and they've just, just, everyone has just been piling in and piling in. You know, the story was horrible in March. And then all of a sudden everyone's like, hey, guess what? Oil and gas is, uh, you know, kind of is where it's at right now. You know, nobody's in, nobody's invested in that, so it's just been going up, 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 and they'll finally it hit that range where it's almost at your point where you say, hey, the future, you know, uh, cash flow model says says it should be one twenty. Well, that's where it was, and so a lot of people are like, okay, it's it's uh, it's fairly valued here. It's time to take profits, and so it's rolled over. So now, kind of seems like the bears are in charge, and. Um, so we'll just have to see. I think ExxonMobil will fight back with a, aggressive share buybacks now that its balance sheet's fixed. Because I that's like what it, <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> you know, because I got to tell you they they they're they're terrible at share buybacks. You know what I mean? Like uh, they always buy back shares at the high point, and then the next thing you know, it it drops, and they're like, oh my god, you know why? You know they. They are they are not the best allocators as far as share. Like you said, they bought what fifteen billion back yeah. last year or something like that. Yeah. What what price point did they get for that? You know, like probably higher than it is right now. I because they have you know so they're just not really the greatest investors as far as buybacks go. It's it's during like the oil pricing bust, they didn't have the ability to buy back their stock because of the bloated balance sheet at the. But that would be the perfect time too. It's why. Commodity names yeah. need to have... That's why they <laughs> suck. You it. need to have a strong balance sheet throughout the economic cycle. Because the time when you should be buying back your stock is when because of... They can't. Yeah, exactly. I think going forward, they might have changed their mentality on that a bit. So now they'll be able to be more opportunistic. Yeah, but like, that's the point I was making, uh, Callum. You know, like I, I don't really put a whole lot of uh, you know faith in like, oh, they did a, you know that big 70 billion buyback, you know, two, three... Five million billion tranches or something like that. That didn't really, that didn't really uh, do anything for me. I'd rather them increase the dividend. They should have taken that money and put it in the dividend, not buybacks. I dividend increases a, because it's a longer term capital allocation thing. If you want to maintain your dividend aristocrat status, it's a much bigger commitment by increasing your dividend. Even if it's a small increase, it's a small increase for like over the next 100, 200 years that you're going to have to keep making good on that where buybacks is it's a, a flexible lever that you can pull. I think one thing X that will help ExxonMobil's technical performance is management just throwing gobs of free cash flows at its stock, but whether or not that would, it, in order for share buybacks to like generate shareholder value, you have to be buying back the stock at below its intrinsic value. And we'll, we'll see uh, how the economy pans out over the next half of this year. But I, I mean, it, it would have been perfect if ExxonMobil could buy back enormous amounts of its stock in 2020, 2021. The balance sheet just wasn't there. <laughs> but I'm glad at least management is like rewarding shareholders instead of empire building. Because they uh, instead of buying back stock, you could pursue a whole bunch of big 
like projects that don't generate any shareholder value whatsoever. You like make a X LNG export plants you don't need or grow your production. Well, one thing we haven't mentioned that they're really big on and they've done a lot in the past is, is, uh, you know, growth by acquisition, you know, and that was the topic of one of my, uh, articles in the past is, uh, you know, they do have, uh, they have, uh, you know, done a lot of repair to the balance sheet and got the free cash flow. So a lot of times, um, ExxonMobil, you know, they go out and uh, look for to make a, a, an acquisition to improve, you know, their uh, their output and all that. And so um, that could be in the cards. I think they're waiting too, just like uh, just like I am and everyone else. I think they see, you know, some headwinds uh, up ahead and, uh, you know, the supply demand situation right now isn't playing out like everyone thought. China's not coming back online like they were supposed to. Uh, Iran and Russia are still producing and Venezuela are all just, you know, uh, producing at high, high levels right now on the supply side. So um, if a recession hits and some of these other, you know, like Fang, uh, Diamondback Energy and Devon, or, you know, uh, even Pioneer was kind of uh, talked about as well a while back. Um, ExxonMobil might be getting the market and pick one of those up. I heard that there was a Wall Street Journal story about ExxonMobil engaging in preliminary talks with Pioneer, which makes sense. I mean, you have a lot of scale in the Permian, so acquiring Pioneer, like there's a lot of operational overlap. One company, I don't think they would, they're going to do it, but if you bought Hess just to gain greater exposure to Guyana, because Hess is U.S. onshore assets, like in the Bakken, that would overlap with ExxonMobil's existing position. And it would have a much larger stake in Guyana's future. Plus, there's some assets Hess owns in Southeast Asia, like Malaysia and Thailand. And ExxonMobil is also in that region. I think because ExxonMobil is an LNG plant in Papua New Guinea. So I think Hess is a potential target or a big Permian company like Devon, Pioneer, some of these other companies out there. You know, you you mentioned that every time you mentioned something, you made me think of another thing I, uh, you know, that I that I had thought about. But a lot of those countries that you just named off and uh, places where ExxonMobil is is dilly dallying or whatever, it's uh, you know, I think that uh, increases the risk quite a bit just because of the political uh, status. You know, like who knows what's going to happen? Like, you know in any of those countries, you know, I have no idea, you know what I mean? So, um, you need a lot of, that kind of worries me a little bit. You need a lot of geographical uh, diversity because you need to operate basically in every country because the asset nationalizations are always in the cards or a huge increase in taxes or like an export ban. So you have to meet local demand at much lower prices. I like what all the energy majors, it's either you want an energy major or a company that operates primarily in America, if you're looking at this space, a company that operates only in one country. Like if you're like Uganda's uh, developing an oil industry and there's some companies that are operating there that are listed in the in London. I mean, Uganda could be loaded with oil and gas, but if there's a change in the Ugandan regime, I mean, your assets could be wiped out overnight. Huge amount of reward, huge amount of risk if you're picking a company that operates in only one country. Which is why I like ExxonMobil, because Exxon can invest in uh, Uganda's oil industry and help it develop oil refineries and petrochemical plants there. But if the worst thing happens, you know, it, it's not over for ExxonMobil. But if you're just picking one country to invest in, America is the only real serious game in town. Yeah, and they did They did uh, just uh, have a big, uh, I, think, uh, I think it was Brazil, 
off the coast of Brazil, where they, uh, I think they, they went after it like three times and uh, uh, finally gave up. And it just didn't pan out to what it was supposed to be. Uh, some of the pre-salt plays out there, uh, I don't know a lot about the petroleum engineering side, but it's just like pre-salt, drill a little bit deeper, drill a little bit farther out. And they weren't able to hit the kind of like exploration successes seen in Ghana or the Gulf of Mexico because like the engineering complexities combined with the oil discoveries not being large enough. It just, I, Brazil's, it's, it has a lot of oil and gas there, but a lot of it just isn't that economical. It is a large oil and gas producer, but it, I, Ghana maybe at one point will produce more oil than Brazil just because it's more economical there. All right, man. I think, uh, I think we pretty much took it out, man. Well, thank you, Callum, and thank you, David. I really appreciate you both joining us today. And uh, all articles referenced from Seeking Alpha, you can find it on the show notes below the episode description of this podcast. Look for Callum Turkin's articles on Seeking Alpha and David Alton Clark's Winter Warrior Investor Investing Group. Just a reminder, anything you hear on this podcast should not be considered investment advice. This is for entertainment purposes only, and you should seek advice from a licensed professional before investing. If you enjoyed the episode, leave a rating or review on your favorite podcasting app, and we'll see you soon with a new episode.